This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Hour two of Freestyle Friday is upon us, also Inauguration Day, but we're going to take a turn into something else, just something that I thought would be interesting and fun for us all to talk about and learn about. We're joined by Dr. Costas Ephimio. He is a physicist and associate professor at the University of Central Florida. He uh, published a paper a few years ago called Hollywood Blockbusters, Unlimited Fun But Limited Science Literacy. That's right. He tells us what's real and what's not when it comes to physics and Hollywood blockbusters. Dr. Ephemio, good to have you. Uh, Thanks a lot for allowing me to talk about physics and uh, movies. All right. So you, you actually teach a class on this. If you had to give a grade overall, to Hollywood paying attention to physics in real life when it comes to uh, action movies, big budget movies, what what do you think the overall grade should be? Uh, I think the low uh, the grade would be low, but I don't want to be really negative, so I would avoid to uh, say an actual grade, uh, but I would say that it is low. So okay, let's talk about some of these. Uh, you you actually work through. Uh, movies that are particularly bad when it comes to physics. Uh, And then we'll get into some of the movies that are good when it comes to physics. But first, uh, Armageddon. Why is Armageddon so bad when it comes to reality and physics? I think everyone listening has probably seen that movie. Yes, uh, that was a very exciting movie, actually. And my students always uh, like it. Uh, For some reason, they find the movie very entertaining. Um, Fortunately, the big uh, plan of NASA uh, is a plan that does not work at all. You know, an asteroid is coming uh, towards Earth. Um, uh, Apparently, it's going to destroy Earth. And then NASA decides to send um, uh, a nuclear bomb to split the asteroid such that the two fragments will move above and beneath the Earth. The problem is uh, when you work the numbers um, according to what the movie gives to us, uh, the two fragments do split, but they separate only by 200 meters. So uh, the plan of NASA is to, uh, instead of having one a single asteroid colliding with Earth, to have two pieces colliding in very, very small distance among them. So it's not a plan at all. So they don't save the Earth as we see in the movie. And uh, you say in Independence Day, I thought this was interesting, uh, the mothership of the aliens is so big that they don't need to fire any weapons? What do you mean? 
Absolutely. I mean, it, the, the, the spaceship is so huge. And in fact, the second movie that uh, it was um, more recent, um, uh, you know, they, you know, it's, it's even worse because uh, the spaceship is even bigger. Now, what happens um, really with such a big uh, spaceship as it approaches Earth, Earth is orbiting around the sun, uh, there will be a big uh, perturbation on the Earth's orbit. And it is very, very possible that, um, you know, either the moon or the, well, certainly the moon, but even the Earth will be knocked out of the orbit and then will start wandering in space away from the sun, which means the ultimate death for us. Huh. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, all right. In Spider-Man, the Green Goblin holds... Uh, MJ with one hand and a cable supporting a train full of children with the other hand, other than the fact that he'd have to be really strong. But you admit that you're saying superheroes can have superpowers, but the right. world is still supposed to be the world. So why is this? Why is this no good? Right. So I will I will let uh, um, Green Goblin be as strong as uh, everyone would like. Uh, but the problem here is that there are two unequal forces on the two sides. And one force is very big, and the other force is very small. So what happens if you if you accept the laws of our universe? Uh, if if the net force, if the sum of the two forces is not zero, then the object is going to move towards the direction in which the bigger force points. So in this case, the Green Goblin has to move towards the side uh, where the train is. Uh, so there is no way he can actually balance his body without another force on uh, MJ's side. Gotcha. Um, and now you say that of the movies, of the big movies that people might be familiar with that uh, deal with, with physics and, and do a bad job, the movie Core is perhaps the worst. Uh, Core is what? They, they're drilling to the center of the Earth and they're going to set off right. nukes? Absolutely, yes, yes. So... Um, in that movie, uh, the center of the, of, of the Earth has stopped rotating, and that's, of course, a bad thing, as, uh, you know, we learn. And, um, uh, you know, the plan here is actually to drill in the center of the Earth, uh, place um, a nuclear bomb, explode it, and then uh, the center of the Earth will start rotating again. Um, well, of course... Uh, the drilling is a problem by itself. Um, um, you know, the, you know, if you if you look actually at the data, uh, we don't have mines that are very very deep in the earth. Uh, we have probably drilled um, a mine up to 15 kilometers inside the earth. Let's say 20 kilometers is the best we can do. The radius of the earth is 6,500 kilometers. So you can actually understand here it's 15 versus 16 versus uh, 6,500 um, kilometers. Um, and that's one of the problems. Uh, unfortunately, core, core is uh, it's so bad that in every scene, basically, there is um, uh, a mistake in physics. Um, so we keep seeing mistakes one after the other that, that happened um, in... Um, I don't know if, if the audience does not pay attention, of course, or, or maybe they learned physics a little the wrong way. 
Um, and uh, one more for you. I, I just want to ask. You said that movies that kind of get it right are Interstellar and uh, 2001. What, what, yes. uh, t- Interstellar yes. people really liked, but movies. go ahead. Um, 2001 is a little older, but, uh, you know, Kubrick uh, had um, a group of uh, scientists advising him uh, how to make things right. So I think probably he was one of the first people to to try to have correct physics. And, um, and the movie uh, was a, a huge success. More recently, uh, Interstellar, which was also a big um, uh, successful movie, uh, is a movie that um, uh, is getting um, uh, the science correct. The person behind the movie is Professor Kip Thorne from uh, Caltech, a very interesting person. Uh, When he he wrote um, the movie, his vision was actually to have a very nice, entertaining movie, and at the same time to have the science correct, or at least not to contradict anything known. And as far as I understand, he had many discussions and even arguments with the director and uh, the screenwriters about how to to show the science in the movie. The final product, actually, uh, is, 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 is quite believable, even for scientists. So it's not... Um, it's not a movie where uh, things happen uh, the wrong way. Uh, it's a movie where um, anything that happens is, a, is something possible. It could happen, um, although there is no proof that can happen this particular way. All right. Dr. Kostas, Ephthimio, physicist and associate professor at the University of Central Florida. He is the author of Hollywood Blockbusters, Unlimited Fun but Limited Science Literacy. Dr. Ephthimio, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Of course. Uh, team, the phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Freestyle Friday continues. Bring me some action quotes, if you dare. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. So team, I want to prepare you all for what the media coverage of all this stuff is going to be like now that Trump is president. Really interesting, as he called it, a tweet storm from Ted Frank, who is, um, well, what? who is, uh, I can't look it up because then I'll lose the, lose the thread here, but he's a, he's a verified dude on Twitter. And this is what he writes. Why does the MSM have the mainstream media have so little credibility with the right? Colleagues, it's time for some game theory. And he goes, start by reading Molly Hemingway on how abusively GOP nominees are being treated. 
I talked about that yesterday, and I cited Hemingway's piece, too, before this tweet storm from uh, Ted Frank. And then he goes into another story that I didn't get into, which is that Trump's Treasury pick, uh, Mnuchin, Steve Mnuchin, has this story out about him. It was pushed by Politico, and then many other sites seized on it, that Mnuchin's bank foreclosed on a 90-year-old widow's home over 27 cents, as Frank points out here. Then he goes into the details. One, widow was never foreclosed on and never lost her home. Two, it wasn't Mnuchin's bank that brought the suit. Other than that, accurate. He says, the story on its face made no sense. No court permits that kind of foreclosure and banks lose money on the deal. And he says that he checked for Polk County, Florida for the court dockets and the story was wrong. He said four minutes of fact checking would have shown that. He said the Politico simply repeated the lawyer's claim without checking or deliberately shaded story to be misleading. He says that HuffPost, The Hill, Vanity Fair, CNN, all just repeated Politico's false reporting. The story pops up again at a hearing. He says that Greenhouse New York Times tweeted the bogus HuffPost story, and he let him know that it's wrong. And then he says people are tweeting at him telling him he's wrong. Because Politico said so. And so he's a jerk because Politico said that he's wrong. He says, don't take my word for it. Through all the documents, they're public. I'll step through the sequence with some excerpts. Mnuchin was head of One West. Uh, Citigroup buys out the bank in 2015. Mnuchin, not the head of Citigroup, just a shareholder on the board. And anyway, he he goes into all the details here. Uh, The bottom line is that... um, this is just all wrong. The whole story they ran with is wrong. And it's it's amazing. Uh, suit is dumb and waste of money. Lofton only owes 27 cents. No court is going to permit a foreclosure and bank would lose money if they did. It was quickly dismissed when the error was pointed out. We have a counterclaim pending. No foreclosure took place. So there was no foreclosure. This was all false. This whole story about Steve Mnuchin evil, greedy, vulture capitalist running a bank that would foreclose on a 90-year-old widow who owed 27 cents. Political runs with it, and then Vanity Fair, HuffPost, all the others run with it too. It was a it was a false story. Now, this is where you start to get into the uh, designation the media loves to run to whenever they do this. They say, well, it's not fake news, Buck. Don't call it fake news. This isn't some... Russian troll creating a story hoping that it gets traction based in nothing. Okay, but at what point, I do think it is fair to ask, at what point is reckless reporting equivalent to fake news? At what point is, I want this story to be true, therefore I'm not going to do the very basics of journalism here and just going to run with this narrative to cause damage to a person or an organization or an idea that I don't like. When is that worthy of being called fake news? Do we have to sit around and pretend that it's all it's all just a big mistake that anybody could have made? You know, there are mistakes and then there are blunders, there are big mistakes. And when you report an entirely false story, one would think one would think that there would be a little bit more uh, humility from those in the media who do this sort of thing 
But no, they like to sneer at us and say that the only real fake news comes from the right. And that's just a flat out lie. And, you know, if it's a question of whether or not there's some basis for the reporting of a story, no matter how flimsy, uh, no matter how uh, lacking in credibility the initial sources may be, well, I think that tells you a lot. Tells you a lot that they would go forward with this stuff. So we just need to be clear that there is a repeated, uh, a repeated problem that is specifically getting worse under the Trump administration. And that problem is that the left wing media goes with stories that are not true and then quietly scales them back when confronted. But the damage has already been done, so it doesn't really matter. You know, this is sort of uh, similar to how in a, in a court of law, you know, if you stand in front of the jury, well, this could actually get you a mistrial. But, you know, when somebody brings something up and they go, you know, objection, sometimes they bring it up knowing there's going to be an objection because they just want it to be said in front of the jury. They want them to hear something. And that's why this is advocacy journalism. They're acting as, as though they're advocates. They're trying to push for one side over the other. Uh, also, as an aside here, the anti-Trump uh, protests are are pretty bad there's uh, some video popping up on social media i'm seeing here of uh black block it's so interesting why is it hard for media to understand black block is not a group those of you who listen to this show know this black block is a tactic used by primarily anarchists but generally just left-wing protesters they all dress in block they move in a group i'm sorry they all dress in black they move in a group and it comes from Germany in the 1970s, nuclear protests there. One, because it gives them a sense of they're wearing some kind of a uniform and, ooh, they're all in black. It also makes it harder to arrest them because if they're covering their faces and they're all wearing black, it's tough for law enforcement to give a description of them. They obviously at night are harder to see. I mean, these are all the... There's a reason why they're all dressed in black head to toe. There's a reason why ninjas used to do this too. Okay, we get it. Of course, these guys are not ninjas, unless you think that it takes particular skill to smash the window of a Starbucks on K Street in D.C. These are the, these are the kinds of things that they have been doing. So, uh, they're, yes, they, they are acting out. They are being childish. They are doing exactly the things that many of us uh, expected them to do. I don't know how serious the violence has been yet, uh, but, yeah. Uh, and and I, I guess we could we could talk a little bit, although I missed the end of the speech because on on air with you. But Obama went after. I'm sorry, Trump went after Obama's uh, Washington here. This is the headline on Drudge Report. And Donald Trump's first speech as president was classic Donald Trump. He's saying that he's going to really shake things up. Given what the me, I, I think there's one part of all this that the media never takes into account. Then the more they try to destroy him. The more they go all in, zero sum, scorched earth against Donald Trump, the harder it would be for them to, down the line, try to co opt him at some level. I think this is a very important, uh, very important component that they do not factor into what they're doing. They're just so focused on trying to destroy Trump. They're not given a much choice but to be the president that they're somewhat afraid of. I mean, he's not going to do the things that they're saying they're staying up late in a cold sweat worried about. But 
that he would betray his base on the various promises he's made. Why? He's never going to be accepted by the New York Times. He's never going to be accepted by the Washington Post, by the broadcast news networks. Never. Not in a million years. It's just not going to happen. So with that said, why would he change his mind? And he's, yeah, he's a guy with a big ego, and he's a guy with tendencies towards narcissism. We can argue on how how profound that is a character trait for him, but he does certainly have that in him. And here we are, thinking that the media constantly attacking him very much personally and his family, they're backing him into something of a corner, although maybe he's backing them into a corner. It's another way to look at it. That will happen soon. So uh, we'll talk more about uh, the, the Trump speech, but I've also I've got more fun and unusual guests coming up, team. So uh, much more coming back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Professor of Biodiversity, Earth and Environmental Science at Drexel University, Dr. Sean O'Donnell. He is an expert on tropical insect ecology, focusing on bees, wasps, and ants. Uh, Dr. O'Donnell, thank you very much for calling in. Oh, it's my pleasure. So recently, bumblebees were listed. I saw this piece in USA Today, which got me thinking about this as an endangered or a bumblebee, I should say, a type of bumblebee was listed as an endangered species for the first time. Um, For lack of a better way of putting it, this is a bees are a big deal to us, aren't they? Not just because they make honey. Take it away, Doc. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there there are two really important uh, kind of messages that come out of this listing and just, uh, you know, thinking about bees and their fate in general. Um, one is that bees are, uh, in addition to commercial uh, honeybee keeping, which is where, as you, as you said, we get our, our honey and beeswax, um, bees really kind of the most important thing that they do for us from a commercial standpoint is provide pollination services. And uh, domesticated honeybees that are being trucked around and, and used on a massive scale are, of course, you know, really important in pollination. But we rely very heavily on native wild bees for pollination of lots of crops and, and other kinds of plants as well. And, uh, you know, in a sense, you know, pardon the pun, th- those kinds of bees uh, tend to fly under the radar. And uh, so I think that this listing of this native bumblebee is important because it helps potentially draw attention to, to that fact, you know, it's not just this bumblebee, but a lot of bees are doing very, very poorly and provide these pollination services. And the other thing that I think is important about this is it, it, it's sort of, a, if you will, a flagship um, case for, again, you know, hopefully driving a, a wider understanding of the threats to bees and the importance of bees. So, you know, hopefully just by having this one species, as you said, this one bumblebee species is being listed. But uh, really, they're probably serving as an indicator of what's happening to a lot of other bees. And I live in New York City, 
uh, cockroaches are everywhere and indestructible. <laughs> why, why, you know, why aren't they dying off? What's wrong with the bees? Yeah, you know, th- I, I was you know thinking about this and in, in thinking about um, what the implications of this uh, listing of this bee and, and kind of the threats to some of these native bees. I mean, one of the things that we are seeing happen all around the world is not just uh, you know, species extinctions and loss of species, what we're seeing is uh, kind of a homogenization of the wild world where species that uh, live in natural environments, species that tend to require undisturbed habitats are disappearing or declining and shrinking in their ranges, if not absolutely going extinct. Uh, and what we're seeing is kind of a replacement with this set of animals including insects, as you said, cockroaches, that like to be around humans. And, you know, one of the really kind of horrifying scenarios for me as an ecologist is to think of a world that's kind of covered with, you know, as you said, you know, cockroaches, particularly the cockroaches that like to live in our buildings, and uh, the rat species and mouse species, rodents that associate with humans, pigeons, starlings, house sparrows. Um, you know, this is kind of the, you know, the, the animals that do well around humans, that like to live around humans in general are doing well, and this is at the expense of the animals that don't do well around humans. And, uh, you know, these bees, these wild bees, bumblebees, are an example of a species that really needs intact wild habitats. So, yeah, I was going to, what's, what's causing the drop-off in the bee population? I feel like people like bees. They do. Well, you know, this is a, a very, uh, potentially a, a very sad case, because uh, if our understanding of what's happening to that bumblebee is correct, it was a really unanticipated uh, impact driven by human activities, but certainly not intentional. It looks pretty likely now that the massive increase in commercialization of bumblebees for pollinating crops in uh, controlled settings like greenhouses may have contributed to the introduction or increases of pathogens, of diseases of bees into wild bee populations. And there's some evidence to suggest that this particular uh, very dramatic decline or die-off of this native bees of, bom- of uh, bee, of Bombus aphanus, the one that's been listed, uh, may have been contributed to very heavily by diseases, pathogens escaping into the wild. So it's not like people are, you know, out actively persecuting bees on purpose. And in fact, uh, the, if it weren't for some bee biologists paying really close attention to this, you know, admittedly very obscure animal, it might have gone extinct and no one would have even noticed. It's not something that, uh, if you will, on our radar, even though we like bees, uh, you know, I think that a bee like this could disappear from the landscape and most people would never notice, the, certainly, you know, the, the loss of the bee itself. Um, the problem is that when these kinds of animals start to disappear, we can suffer negative consequences because of losing their services and the role that they play in the ecology. There's no there's no insect other than the bee that can do this pollination process. Is that correct? It's this that's, is like yeah, bees that's a great, are the only game that's a in great town. Question. I mean, you know, there there are two two interesting things about this. You know, one is that bumblebees, in particular. The way that they forage and the way that they visit flowers is very different from the ways that honeybees visit flowers. And so bumblebees, because they're big and robust and they're able to buzz their wing muscles when they visit flowers, they can pollinate plants that other kinds of bees, like honeybees, are 
really lousy at pollinating. So that's you know, one interesting uh, issue. And then another is that if we look across lots of wild bees, other kinds of wild bees, you know, not just bumblebees, um, many of them are highly specialized. So bumblebees and honeybees are actually unusual among bees because they will visit lots of different kinds of flowers. Most of the bees out there will only visit one species or a very small number of species of flowers, and oftentimes that specialized relationship goes both ways. So in other words, the native bee will visit a certain kind of flower. Very few or no other bees will visit that flower. And so it's like when you lose the insect, you're in danger of losing the plant as well. Huh. Uh, do all no, Just a, a couple of questions from the, the layman's corner over here. Uh, do all bees sting? Or are there some that don't sting? There are some bees that don't sting. Um, most native bees here do. Uh, a lot of them are solitary, so they're not going to be really dangerous. They wouldn't sting you unless you actually grab them. They would never, you know, kind of come after you. Um, the ones that we worry about most are the social bees, and they're, they're going to be stinging, you know, usually in the context of defending their nests. So if you don't grab bees, they're not likely to sting you. But there's a huge array of species of bees that live in the tropics that are called stingless bees. Uh, they're re also social bees, very interesting because they have actually lost their sting uh, over evolutionary time. But one of the things that's interesting about these so-called stingless bees is they do maintain some weaponry. They usually use their, their mandibles or their mouth parts. And a lot of them have really nasty chemical compounds associated with their bites um, that can be very, very painful. Between a bee and a wasp, generally, which is it worse to get stung by? You're an expert <laughs> in both. There's a lot of variation in you know, how bad stings are. I actually have a, a friend and colleague named Justin Schmidt um, who's uh, received some press recently. He just published a book. Uh, he actually developed a scale of subjective sense of pain that humans experience. What's the book called? We'll give, we'll give him a plug. You give your colleague's uh, book a plug. What's it called? Uh, uh, his book is called The Sting of the Wild. Okay. And again, and who's at the top of the list of the of, of, of the insect kingdom uh, of bees and wasps and ants? Uh, which are the worst ones to get to get bitten or stung by? Yeah, it, it really it, you know, it really depends on the species. But I would say on average, I would have to rank the wasps as the worst stingers. There are some wasps that are just absolutely fantastically painful um, when you get stung. And there aren't too many bees that really reach that level of pain. And are those wasps that are here, like the things that I see sometimes indoors in you know, cold weather that seem to like to you know, have little nests in the northeastern United States that, you know, I think people usually refer to them as hornet. A hornet is a wasp, right? Am I using the terminology? Uh, a, people... hornet, a hornet is a wasp. Yeah, a hornet is kind of a, a common name for a wasp that has a large body size. Um, there is one species of really nasty large-bodied hornet, hornet sorry, that's been uh, introduced into the U.S., it's the uh, European hornet. Um, they pack a wallop there in a genus called Vespa, and there are species of Vespa in the Old World tropics in Asia, uh, particularly in China, that are absolutely huge in body size and extremely painful uh, when they sting. And there are actually um, stories of those kinds of hornets killing people outright, you know, not just based on allergy, but actually killing people outright with their stings which uh, sounds like a pretty lousy way to go to me. One sting or like a lot of stings? Uh, no, it would take more than one, but the fact that they can actually do it, I think is you know, really kind of impressive and intimidating. Yeah. This is like the, ter the terminators of the insect ecology world. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Ants, I, I, I definitely wouldn't want to tangle with them. 
I have seen uh, I've seen some of those Nature Channel documentaries, you know, Discovery and those kinds of places or Animal Planet. Bullet ants, they're the worst, right? Or they're worse bullet ants. Bullet ants are bad. Yeah, I've been stung by a bullet ant once. Um, it was really fantastically painful. You know, I would say it wasn't as bad as some of the legends or stories that I've heard, but it was a definitely memorable uh, experience. The bullet ants thing is interesting because, you know, a lot of other, you know, if you've ever been stung by a honeybee or uh, a yellow jacket, there's kind of that chemically burning sensation that goes along with being stung. The bullet ant pain is very mechanical. So it felt a lot like someone taking a nail. Uh, I, I happened to get stung in the thumb and it felt like somebody just took a nail and drove it into my thumb and then just kept hitting it with a hammer over and over again for several hours. Um, really, really bad. Man. All right. Yeah. Uh, important, important safety tip, everybody. Stay away yeah, from, yeah. stay away from bullet Stay ants. away from bullet well, ants. Uh, yeah. What, what, just one, one more for you, uh, Dr. Sean O'Donnell from uh, Drexel University. Uh, what what can we do to what can we do to save the bees? Is there a campaign? I feel like this would lend itself to social media. Well, save the bees. People like bees. I, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are things that people can do actually that could really make a difference in helping with native bees. And um, one of those things that people can do, you know, if you're lucky enough to be a property owner and you've got a yard, if you plant native vegetation and flowers for the bees to visit you can actually make a difference in local bee population just by providing them uh, resources to use. All right. Dr. Sean O'Donnell, Professor of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science at Drexel University. Anywhere you want to direct people, uh, your website, or anywhere they can follow you on social media? Um, gosh, I do, I do have a, a website. I guess if, if people are interested in following up, if you look me up on the uh uh, our, my department webpage at Drexel. The, again, it's the Bees Department, Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science. Uh, you can find a link to my webpage there. Cool. We've got, we've got some beekeepers in the audience, actually, Doc. So there you go. Uh, th- thank you so much, Professor. We appreciate you coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Team, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a freestyle today. We're talking bees. That was an, that was an angry bee. This bee will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. I spoke to you earlier about this team. I think actually last week, and I'm just seeing it now in the Daily Caller. Sometimes I pick up stories during the show that I wanted to touch on. It's from the Daily Caller News Foundation. A Democratic lawmaker plans to initiate. Yep, you guessed it. Impeachment proceedings against President-elect Donald Trump as soon as possible, according to a Wednesday interview with the Young Turks. Democratic Rep. Jamie Raskin from Maryland's 8th Congressional District uh, serves as a professor of constitutional law. Right now, it looks pretty obvious that he's in a collision course with the emoluments clause, Raskin asserted. He has refused to divest himself of tens of billions of dollars of business interests around the world doing business with foreign governments. Yeah, sure, man. 
You're going to get Trump out of office on the emoluments clause. You always know that the you always know that the left is is freaking out when they start trying to find interpretations of laws that 99% of Americans have never heard of and don't know anyway uh, to try to oust a president from from office or to oust somebody from a race or from whatever. This is this is where all this is going. Like this is kind of an obscure congressman who's trying to make some uh, trying to make some noise here and get some attention. I suppose in a sense, I'm falling into the trap. It's a trap. Uh, but there you have it. But do we have anybody with any action movie quotes? I thought I saw one a second ago. I was ready. N- N- Shamont, anybody up on? And no, nobody wants a piece. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Come on. Somebody needs to bring me bring me that action movie noise. I'm sure you got something for me. Um, I just want to tell you, next hour we've got uh, t- uh, two fantastic guests. Uh, interestingly enough, both uh, though are on the show for very to talk about very different things. Both former military. One of them is a author uh, with a brand new book out. Is a dear friend of mine. I'm really excited he's going to be joining us, uh, Kamal Ravikant. And then I don't I don't know I don't want to spoil the surprise because the other guest is it's really cool and. I think that we'll I've never gotten a chance to talk to him before, but we're both going to talk a little history and also history in a TV show that I like that happens to be having its last season starting in a week. So we got we got a lot to cover. It's a lot for us to discuss, team. Much, much, much for us to get into here. But uh, if you want to talk about the inauguration, anything you got on your mind, eight 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 nine zero zero. Three three nine three. Please do uh, let me know what your thoughts are on all that. And uh, also, you can go to Facebook.com/slash Buck Sexton. Be taking questions and chatting with folks and having conversations there. I can't believe it's already hour three. Back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Oh,